Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are Hello and welcome to the Sustaining Open Source Software podcast around design and UX specifically. I am one of your three hosts today, Errol. You may have heard me on other episodes and we are following up with the second part of a series of podcasts about the user work, which is a project that Superbloom and friends investigated how design and usability is done and could be done in scientific and research open source software. So on the episode today, we have myself talking about a couple of chapters that I wrote that I didn't talk about in the previous episode. And we also have Katie Wilson and Meg Doherty. Katie, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your relationship to the user project for this work? Sure. Hello. I'm happy to be here. My name is Katie Wilson and I'm a design researcher at Superbloom. I've been one of the principal researchers on the user project. I both participated in many of the interviews we completed with project contributors, helped write the survey that we conducted, and also helped synthesize the data and wrote a few chapters for our final findings document. Alongside our work to do with gathering data and synthesizing data and then writing a document about the findings, we also did a, a number of other pieces of work that we may get to talk about a little bit if we do have the time. We talked a little bit about the social systems map and some of the usability design rubric that Jan and Abhishek did as well. So maybe we'll get a bit of time to talk about some of the other work that you did on the ecosystem map, Katie. We'll see if we get the time. But I'd like to introduce our other host panelist for the episode today. We have Meg Doherty. Tell us about yourself and your relationship to the project. Great. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm Meg Doherty. My day job is I'm the Deputy Chief User Experience Officer at the All of Us Research Program at with Wondrous in Los Angeles. And why I'm at this project is my fellowship with the Software Sustainability Institute. So I came to the Institute about two years ago, and my mission at the time was to try to find scientific and research open source projects who were interested in evaluation. I was feeling pretty alone in understanding how to evaluate not just usability, but how our software was serving our end users. So I spent about a year doing a lot of in-person meetings and very informal conversations where I, I got to publish a few things on the SSI blog. And then I heard about this amazing user project that was taking the same ideas, asking about usability and design and open source, particular in research software and figuring out in a more robust way of how to address some of these challenges. So Thankfully, through the goodness of the open source world, connected with the folks at Superbloom and have served in a number of ways. I'm all started tagging some interviews and helping with the, some early analysis. And then more recently have been working with the team on dissemination. So we spent the past few months thinking about how to package up this story, how to share it with which audiences and who needs to hear the story most. So happy to be here and share that story with, with a new audience today. The 
Topic of end users is really interesting, Meg, and I think that maybe I'll go into some of the findings from the two two of the chapters that I wrote that ended up being some of the longer chapters that I ended up writing about usability and accessibility as both terminologies and how they were understood by science and research open source software projects. But also I wanted to particularly delve in on just one aspect, given that we were talking about end users here and how uh, one of the discoveries that we found when we are thinking about usability and talking to participants about usability is that often in science and research open source software tool teams, and in my experience, like most open source software tools, they appear to have an ideal user type. And it's not necessarily an ideal user type that they would describe and use the word as ideal user type, but that they would certainly talk about the kind of user that would be able to perform certain functions and certain commands and know how to self-serve knowledge and how to use the tool through a combination of being able to access documentation in a way that the projects and the maintainers and the people that configured the technology expected them to, and be able to search out solutions to their problems themselves and kind of have this knowledge, which is often inherent in a lot of open source software. So scientific and research open source software isn't unique in, in this quirk, but that there is this kind of understanding that if you're interested in or use an open source software that you have already gained by using the open source software or coming to the open source software, you already have the skills of which to problem solve for yourself. As I talk about the ideal end user or the ideal users of the scientific and research open source software, I just kind of want to address a quote from this chapter that was written where a designer working out of a university-based lab across multiple open source software talks about the rigid and protective way that open source software projects can suggest users use a tool. And this is familiar in a lot of ways from open source software around the correct or incorrect usage of a tool or the expected usage of a tool being linked to the ideal user being able to self-serve as well. So here is an example when they have this, they being the scientific and research open source software, have this very specific way of querying data. Either you know or you don't know. And it can be simplified quite easy from a design point of view using filters that are self-explanatory, but they just don't want people that don't know about the subject to search in a way that is easier, essentially. And it promotes this protective way of being able to access and use a particular kind of tool, given that there is, for lack of a better term and quite a provocative term, like a correct way to engage with scientific and research open source software. Yeah, it's quite a harsh truth, I think, maybe. It's quite a hard thing maybe to hear, but I think it's a really interesting finding given what we were learning. And I think it's often unintentional as well. It's often an implicit. Right. I was thinking about talking about something related and it goes right along with what you were just saying, Errol, about it. Not this kind of concept of the ideal user not always being an intentional choice on behalf of some of these maintainers. But what we asked a lot of projects and particularly the developer maintainers of these projects, what design means to them. Many explain design as a feature of their code base itself, meaning how can they make the software itself and the code as easily maintained and contributed to as possible. So many maintainers explicitly define that as a design practice and some described similar practices, but did not necessarily understand it as 
quote, design work. And thinking about that, it has a very similar kind of implication as to what Errol was just saying, where there's this kind of intense focus as the user being a fellow programmer or someone with kind of the same skill set, same technical proficiency as the developer themselves or the maintainer who's kind of thinking about design in this way. And that was a really interesting thing to me because we did hear a lot about projects needing to improve what they identified as language barriers between either different disciplines, between users and developers, between designers and maintainers, between scientists and, for lack of a better term, technologists or programmers. But this kind of parallel phenomenon was occurring when many of the users or contributors and maintainers do kind of speak the same language or the developers are really creating their tool for people who they presume speak their same language or have their same kind of technical proficiency. So this question really came up around how do the scientific and research open source software projects develop an understanding of the nuances between the design of the code and the users who interact with the code of the software versus the kind of potential users who could interact with just the tool itself and kind of challenging that concept of the user as a fellow developer or a fellow contributor to the code itself. So that was really interesting to me too. I'll just say one last thing on the usability chapter before we, I want to hear from Meg and what Meg thinks and the kinds of things that they were discovering throughout the research. But it's connected to this, it's somewhat connected to this aspect of how users and the usage of the tool is defined and like complexity. And like, I feel like this is more of an opinion of mine mixed in with some of the findings. It's a reflection of mine mixed in with some of the findings about what we discovered. But I feel like sometimes the scientific and research open source software use complexity as a safety aspect, like something that kind of makes them feel safe and secure in their validity and their relevance within their field. Like I feel like there was a sense of science and research is complex. And if our tools don't operate in a complex way or are not seen to be complex, then are they doing good science? And I think that that's kind of a trap that these open source software, scientific research open source software tools get into. There was one user participant that we spoke to that spoke about what we're doing is complicated in some ways and we make try to make it as simple as possible and how we encapsulate the abstract complexity in a way that people understand, but that they've gotten into, they've missed a lot of opportunities to make really reasonably, and I say this from a perspective, my a design perspective, reasonably easy usability improvements because they often think that it can't be simplified to a level which is similar to non-scientific and open source software. So a really complicated finding around like the interpretation of usability, not necessarily as directly applied and changed into the tool, but like the concept of usability being a almost a threat to the nature of science and research. That is an excellent segue, Errol, to where I see some of this work going and fitting in. Just a comment about the user research project itself. I think the timing is really great in terms of 
where the rest of the ecosystem is talking right now. And coming from the sort of sustainable software perspective, there's a lot of great focus right now on making sure that software and contributors of software are equally recognized in the research process. And through that conversation, I've got this article here, one of the other fellows, David Horsfall, the title of the article is Research Software Engineering Accelerates the Translation of Biomedical Research for Health. And it really gets into this crux, like this intersection of maybe actually poor usability is holding back open science. And this article and this research does a lot to really clarify that it's usability is not an afterthought. It's central to the decision making. But I do think it's an interesting transition that we're trying to make by saying, Software is critical to research. Yes, we agree on that. Now we need to make this software more usable. So it's almost like we're having these two conversations at once, which I really enjoy because it gives a seat and a place for usability and design to come up in these conversations. And it's just not enough to have the performance software. And this came up in our open science retreat. There's some critical things that must happen and usability is one of them. Yeah, something on on this note that I thought about a lot was what do UX standards mean or UX best practices mean in in the scientific software context? Because to Errol's point about kind of the complexity, either connoting a certain level of work, a certain level of rigor or expertise, I think there's also something to be said around what you're working on, dictating what UX means and good UX means in the tools you're working in. And I think that like a pretty good analogy for us people who work in design is like thinking about the interfaces that we get used to on Adobe products or things like that, that are not very usable (laughs) and pretty complex and take a very steep learning curve. Yeah, I think there was some hesitance with some of our interviewees around their concept of what usability or good UX means being kind of some sort of like mainstream tool that anyone off the street could be able to use. And that's not necessarily what it has to be. And like, how can UX standards kind of adapt to different realms of expertise and like, what could they mean in scientific software specifically? And that doesn't mean like, quote unquote, dumbing it down to be like less powerful, but ultimately just making it so that more people can make scientific progress and discoveries. Yeah, I think the topic of standards or guides or anything that is like a playbook or thing, there's lots of different words that designers use to help structure an approach to designing with a tool for a tool within a given domain. And I think that the point that I want to segue into around accessibility is how there is a understanding of accessibility, which was very clear from a design point of view from the designers that we spoke to that work in the scientific and research open source software space, that is completely, completely different in a lot of respects. And I kind of want to dig into this difference in a little bit more intricacy and nuance just to give it justice but that is completely differently described by the other kinds of functions, the other kinds of roles within scientific and open source research, open source software. So a lot of the designers that we spoke to around the topic of accessibility and asked them to define accessibility within the work that they do, 
A lot of them describe this as something which will sound familiar to designers listening or people that have worked with accessibility guides or tools or kind of frameworks in that it's about making a tool or service or something that somebody uses more widely available for different kinds of ways of operating that tool, be that through the person having disabilities or impairments or coming from a different perspective or coming from a different field. That was the way that designers explained accessibility was very clearly about making sure that people can use something well. Something can be used well and it's designed in a way that makes it easy for people to use. And I think the nuanced difference from people that were not designers that we spoke to was not that that wasn't an understanding of accessibility, that other people can use it well, but that it could be made accessible to other scientific fields so that the ways of exploring science in the initial field that the open source tool was created for could be explored in different ways. And accessibility was understood in a way that was about broadening the application and the potential discovery of science and research. So it wasn't necessarily the use of people with impairments wasn't absent in that definition. It could be inclusive within that definition. But it was clear that the from the people that we spoke to that the focus for accessibility is how well can the science be understood? How well can the functions of our open source software be understood by people that are not astrophysicists and are biologists that have a very different kind of language sense? And I think that the reason that I bring up this difference of understanding of accessibility as one of the key findings of accessibility is you spoke to that difference in understanding, just that slight nuanced difference in how we know and interpret words or frameworks or languages. And I think that some of the understanding of what a UX framework or a UX approach would be means one thing to scientists and researchers, and it means a quite a scary thing to scientists and researchers, given like their broad, more commercial understanding of UX, as opposed to a designer that understands like a usability guide as a way in which to make things kind of more useful to people. I think that scientists and researchers through some of our other engagements doing workshops with science teams were afraid that following UX standards means removing some of the things that makes the science and research unique or the science and research aspect of the software unique. There was like a nervousness around that as well, which was fascinating in a lot of ways and difficult to work with when the problems aren't necessarily about some of the problems that we typically come up against as designers working on like various different kinds of tools are to do with like communication and understanding the purpose of the tool. But some of these problems are much more like about how we understand each other's desires for improvement or like goals or values as we move forward. And I think that was something that came through across a lot of the research as like, oh, if we don't understand how we are approaching the good work on this tool, then it will take much longer to do any kinds of improvements, regardless of what the improvements are towards usability, accessibility, about cross-disciplinary work against prioritization. So the key sort of element of understanding each other better was really important. And I think, Errol, one of the components of this has to do with incentives. And in speaking with folks who are in the university setting or, yeah, mostly in these sort of larger RSE groups in academia, 
I've heard it directly, like developing UI is not on the path for success. So really understanding how these groups are incentivized and who's incentivized. And when there are windows for flexibility, taking advantage of those windows. There are a lot of people, like you're saying, it's there's good intention. People want to make good software and they want to make usable software. They don't always know where to start. And they don't always have time. But I hope in some of this work, as it gets more spread out, that there's additional opportunities for people to learn and to actually take action on some of these ideas that they want. Plenty of RCs out there who want to who, who make that happen. Um, as we wind up for at time of the podcast, time goes by really quickly. I just want to talk about a couple of other things that we worked on as part of the user project. So I'm going to briefly cover some of the work that one of our colleagues, NOP, worked on. NOP is a really fantastic creative designer and researcher and spent a lot of time steeped in the research that we had done and the synthesis that we'd done in order to create a number of different zines or zine-like formats that helped try and explain some of the complicated findings that we were discovering throughout the research in a way that fit onto, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six pages total, which is, is an accomplishment in and of itself to fit a wealth of information on six pages. But the first zine was really focused around design and usability as defined in scientific and research open source software. So talked about what does design mean to you in the context of the software projects. It includes a number of quotes from the people that we interviewed and talked to. And it goes into some detail about why design and usability and what tool makers and end users think about different kinds of terms and how and wraps up with the lack of understanding across usability efforts and how that can improve their tools. We also have a couple of other zines that are currently in just the final touches of being ready to be published on our our website that we're going to and our repository as we push to publish. But we've got a couple of zines that are around the getting to know each other and better understanding each other within the scientific and research open source software. This next one talks about some of the ways in which we can define a open source software developer, open source science and researcher, or somebody that works within scientific and research in some kind of institutional that may or may not have a certain level of understanding of open source and open source software. And then we've got a designer that is doing design within open source software. And it talks about the respect and understanding and the common language efforts that we were discovering. And the other zine in this series of understanding each other better is a little look at how we could work together. So some ideas and suggestions about the potential life cycles of how the different roles within scientific and research open source software could operate. So are there better ways in which to share our work, to better understand our work and better define how we work together as uh, different functions to make scientific and research open source software great? Katie, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other pieces of work that you worked on? Sure. One thing that we were excited to try to develop was an ecosystem map, which we do have a version of on our repository and on the microsite. It was honestly very fun to put together because there are so many interconnected projects and institutions, funding bodies, contributors, etc., in this world. And as we chose to kind of make it a systematic effort as we were going through each interview to kind of add an entry for the project on the ecosystem map, 
And that proved to be a really kind of efficient way to do it because as we went through the interview, the research participant would kind of mention the different connections the project has to other actors in the space. And so it was kind of easy to make those connections and kind of label them, et cetera. I don't mean to say that it's exhaustive by any means, but it was exciting to kind of start to see where those connections happen. And to anyone listening who's in the science and research open source world, we'd love to continue adding to it. And in our repository, you can comment and add any details about yourself or your projects that you'd like to add. So we'd love to see it continue to grow. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about, Meg, just as we come to the end of the recording here? There's a lot of amazing work that you did in conferences recently and a lot of conversations that came out of that. I don't know if you want to speak to some of the topics that you spoke at the various conferences. If you want to name the conferences, you're more than welcome to give them a little plug. And kind of what maybe you hope to do next at various conferences, because I know we had a bit of a chat about the ways in which designers and design activities could be better leveraged at some of these scientific and research open source software conferences. So we've been traveling a bit this spring and in April, when the group came together with some of the preliminary findings for the user project, I brought those with me to the open science retreat in Germany. And we spent an entire week asking ourselves some of these questions about what constitutes usability in this context. And I think the more we ask this question, the different types of answers we get. But I want to share one top takeaway from that that retreat where the audience was mostly research software engineers. The group was very interested in talking about the usability of their own software that they use on a daily basis. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to look at package managers and dev tools and internal tools that RSCs rely on and what usability fixes could help them make more usable software. So sort of a a meta finding from that retreat. And then the two other places that we've had a chance to share some of this work first was at the Software Sustainability Institute's collaboration workshop where we did sort of the same type of go around of less about what is usability and more about how can we do it. So we've got a blog post coming out on the SSI website soon about some tactical steps that you can take if you are somebody who wants to get started and making software more usable. And then most exciting and most recently where the three of us got to be together in person was at JupyterCon in Paris last month. Last month? Yeah. Where I did a session on generally how user feedback works in the open source context and looking at places like GitHub. And there are lots of models out there and looking at the intersection there with community managers. I think there's another big opportunity to look at what is the relationship between community managers and user experience designers and how might we work a little bit closer together. And in the future, I'll plug the open source design group. That was a big, you know, Errol shout out of maybe like, where do we all meet and continue to talk about these things? I've really been craving for those spaces. So I think open source design is a great ongoing online forum. And then really, I think if people are interested in this topic, I think the more we talk about it, the more we go to these conferences, we can just spread the message. And just as an anecdote, after that JupyterCon presentation, we went outside and we had, I don't know, 10, 12 people who couldn't believe there were other designers in SROSS. So, so happy to be with you all and in this group and can't wait to grow awareness even more from this work. 
Yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to finish on and start to wrap up on, given that essentially what is the fact that there are lo- there are a fair few other people working in this space as working on usability design, and they don't necessarily define themselves as designers all the time. There's lots of people that are interested in improving science and research open source software's usability and improving how different people use the tool. And there is like a real hunger for those people that are already in this space doing the design related activities to welcome new people into the space as well, which is a really tricky thing to do. And honestly, is one of the most important things that we'd like to push for after this research is a lot of the work and a lot of the things that we the projects want to see happen, the things that the projects want to improve on, they want to see increase can really only be sustained and be available if we also sustain and increase designers' involvement in these spaces, which means being welcoming, being able to make space for design, regardless of the ways in which designers are coming into the scientific and research space or the way that they're coming into the open source space. The more that we can make the parts that designers don't quite maybe on the kind of peripheries of science and research or the peripheries of open source, the ways that we can include them into those spaces will mean a much more healthier space in the future as far as like numbers of designers, as well as like the skills that come into the science and research open source software space. So yeah, it's really critical that we all keep in touch, keep in community with each other and continue to welcome more people into the space. So we are closing out the podcast and we're going to close out the podcast in the same way that we close out every podcast, where we're going to ask the people present, Katie and Meg and myself, if they have any projects that they'd like to plug. And I'm going to go ahead and start us off. The project that I'd like to plug is a project that is somewhat connected to the work that we're doing with user. And so it feels a little cheeky to plug related project, but it's a project that was funded by the Vermont Complex Systems and VermontComplexSystems.org. It was a series of weekly designer diary studies that designers did over 10 weeks that we coordinated at Superbloom. We are currently still working on the synthesis of all this information from five different designers across the spectrum of open source, inclusive of a number of people that worked in the science and research space. Just basically saying what they did every week. And it's really interesting to just see the amount of different skills, different kinds of conversations and the different aspects to designers' roles in the space. It's not something that we often see data on. So we're really excited to continue on that work, continue synthesizing and get that published ASAP. That's my plug. I'd like to kick it over to Meg. What's your project plug? have an initiative slash project plug. And I want to give a shout out to, I'm based in the US, but the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy has taken really big steps recently to do listening sessions. So with early career researchers and wanting to understand the possibilities of open science, which this is very much situated within If you have perspectives and you want to share and if you just are like me and you want to read all the meeting minutes, check out their page and I'll drop it in the meeting notes. I'm really happy to see all that work happening out in the open and seeing a lot of open science people being very vocal. So bring your voice there. And Katie, if you'd like to close us out with a project that you want to talk about. One project that we spoke to in our research that I found very inspiring was Aut Spaces, spelled A-U-T Spaces. 
which is a digital platform for citizen science data collection. And it's a platform where autistic people can report their experiences on sensory processing differences in everyday life and kind of report what they think would have made it a better experience for them than the experience they had on a given day. And the contributor we were able to speak to just really painted a picture of just very intentional and collaborative community-led open source and kind of creation of this tool. And I found it very inspiring. So shout out to Optics. Yeah, they were fantastic to talk to. I could talk to them for ages. Citizen science is such an interesting topic as well. I'm sure that we could fill a whole podcast with our ideas and thoughts and discoveries on citizen science and how close it felt to a lot of design related ways of doing things. But we will have to save that for another episode of the podcast. Thank you so much, folks, for listening to us talk even more about science and research open source software. It's such a rich and useful vein of information in the open source software space. So we hope that you've learned something, whether you've come here because you're working on a science and research open source software tool, or whether you're in open source software in any other aspect, we hope that it's been useful and interesting to listen to. If you would like to give us any feedback on this podcast or other podcasts or sustain open source software generally, you can email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. If you could give us just a little rate and a little thumbs up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that helps us get extra impressions and extra like people to, to listen to our podcast that might not usually. If you'd like to follow us on our various social medias, you can usually find us on those websites, such as the Twitters at SustainOSS. We've got a discourse forum where if you'd like to continue conversations about the topics that come up in these podcasts and other podcasts, you can find our discourse forum at discourse.sustainoss.org. And you can find other episodes of this podcast and the show notes at SOSD, that's Sustain Open Source Design. So SOSDpodcast.sustainopensourcesoftware or sustainoss.org. Thank you again to the lovely panelists for talking about this really interesting, really intense research project. And we'll see you folks again, listeners. Bye-bye.